Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about a post-impeachment acquittal, power-mad Trump taking advantage of his thoroughly confirmed ability to do basically whatever he wants without repercussion, and the work of Bill Barr at the Justice Department, where he is uh, working to completely subvert the department in favor of using it as a tool to favor the president's friends and harm his enemies. Clips today come from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Tom Hartman Program, On the Media, The Bradcast, The Brian Lehrer Show, and Stay Tuned with Preet. Over the last 48 hours, as the Justice Department has been thrown into crisis and chaos, and for the first time, we are starting to get resignations on principle from career Justice Department personnel who cannot abide what's being done to the justice system by this president. Over these last 48 hours, um, rule number three from Masha Gessen is sticking with me as well. Quote, rule number three, institutions will not save you. It took Putin a year to take over the Russian media and four years to dismantle its electoral system. The Russian judiciary collapsed unnoticed. The capture of institutions in Turkey has been carried out even faster by a man once celebrated as the Democrat to lead Turkey into the European Union. Poland has, in less than a year, undone half the accomplishments of a quarter century in building a constitutional democracy. Of course, the United States has much stronger institutions— than Germany did in the 1930s or Russia does today. The problem, however, is that many of these U.S. institutions are enshrined in political culture rather than in law. And all of them depend on the good faith of all actors to fulfill their purpose and uphold the Constitution. Institutions will not save you. They depend on the good faith of the actors within them. Boy, are we living that. So that was Masha Gessen just a couple days after the 2016 election. Um, not long thereafter, uh, Timothy Snyder's book on tyranny was published shortly after the inauguration. And it followed a similar line of logic, looking at lessons from the collapse of various democracies across Europe over the course of the 20th century to learn lessons for us, to learn lessons for how to protect our democracy and how to know if we're losing that fight to protect our democracy and what we should do then. Snyder, quote, the European history of the 20th century shows us that societies can break, democracies can fall, ethics can collapse, and ordinary men can find themselves standing over death pits with guns in their hands. We might be tempted to think that our democratic heritage automatically protects us from such threats. This is a misguided reflex. Americans today are no wiser than the Europeans who saw democracy yield to fascism, Nazism, or communism in the 20th century. Our one advantage is that we might learn from their experience. Now is a good time to do so. And he published this book right at the time of the inauguration of Donald Trump. And then the book, very short book, goes on to lay out 20 lessons from the 20th century for Americans to consider today. And some of these lessons, some of these rules keep me up, too. For example, rule number one, from Timothy Snyder, do not obey in advance. Most of the power of authoritarianism is freely given. In times like these, individuals think ahead about what a more repressive government will want and then offer themselves without being asked. A citizen who adapts this way is teaching power what it can do. I would amend that in our time to say a senator who adapts in this way. 
is effectively teaching power what it can do. Uh, there's also rule number eight, which is stand out. Quote, someone has to. It's easy to follow along. It can feel strange to do or say something different. But without that unease, there is no freedom. The moment you set an example, the spell of the status quo is broken and others will follow. Is that true? Um, here's the one that is sticking with me right now, uh, given what is going on at the Justice Department and the sort of crisis that we have been thrown into in terms of the rule of law in this country over the past 48 hours. It's Snyder's rule number two. Quote, defend institutions. It is institutions that help us to preserve decency. They need our help as well. Do not speak of our institutions unless you make them yours by acting on their behalf. Institutions do not protect themselves. They fall one after another unless each is defended from the beginning. So choose an institution you care about, a court, a newspaper, a law, a labor union. And take its side. So that's interesting, right? We get this one prescient warning from the Russian-American journalist. Institutions will not save you. They will fail. Do not count on them to save you. We get another warning from the eminent historian of 20th century collapse of democratic and, and rule of law countries. He says, yeah, institutions are important, but institutions do collapse unless each one of us actively defends and saves them from the kinds of pressures they're about to come under. Pick one. Do something to support it. So in the middle of the New Hampshire primary yesterday, right, this very important moment for the Democratic Party trying to pick their nominee to run against Donald Trump, we get this other story, right? This new milestone that we have hit in the Trump administration on rule of law issues. And it is a big enough story that it resulted in split front pages all around the country today. And this is the front page of the New York Times this morning. On the right hand, you see there's the politics. Sanders is winner in New Hampshire. On the left side, in all capital letters, Justice Department acts to ease sentence for Trump ally. Four U.S. prosecutors quit stone case after bosses step in to overrule them. All the way across the country, here's the Los Angeles Times. And there again is the picture of Senator Sanders, the triumphant picture. And you see the headline on politics halfway down the front page, Sanders edges Buttigieg in New Hampshire primary. But then right underneath the masthead there at the top, the competing story left two columns. Prosecutors quit over bid to lessen Stone's sentence. Here's the Hill newspaper in Washington, D.C. Quote, DOJ in chaos. Here's the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Four-column headline, all caps, bold headline, right? All four prosecutors quit stone case. Trump, Trump tweet spurs concerns of DOJ interference. Here's the headline in the Minneapolis Star Tribune today. And yes, they've got full coverage of Sanders grabbing the win in New Hampshire. And also on the front page today, hometown Senator Amy Klobuchar surging into third place in New Hampshire. We're going to be speaking live with Senator Klobuchar here in just a moment, right here on this show. Look at what's on top of the whole front page. DOJ revolt over leniency for Trump pal. So we are here. Believe them when they say who they are, right? You know, we are at that moment that this president did, in fact, promise during the campaign, right? And everybody said at the time how outrageous it was 
how much it crossed a red line for him to say as a candidate that when he's president, he'd instruct his attorney general to prosecute his political opponents. He'd instruct his attorney general to pursue criminal cases on his presidential orders to serve his political needs, punish his enemies, protect his friends. When he said he would do that as a candidate, the outrage. But did you believe him? Well, here we are. Right. And all of the alarms are going off about this. This is a front page thing. And it is as serious as you think it is. Here's a former senior Justice Department official who actually served well into the Trump administration. David Loffman was head of the counterintelligence division at the Justice Department, calling this a break glass in case of fire moment. Here's former Attorney General Eric Holder going right there as well. Quote, do not underestimate the danger of this situation. The political appointees in the DOJ are involving themselves in an inappropriate way in cases involving political allies of the president. In a statement last night, Attorney General Holder saying, quote, actions such as these put at risk the perceived and real neutral enforcement of our laws and ultimately endanger the fabric of our democracy. And equally stunning is, you know, as, as the attorney general is intervening to take over these cases of interest to the president, to, both to help the president's friends and to target the president's perceived enemies, to target anything that poses a perceived threat to the president. Equally stunning alongside what Bill Barr is doing is the fact that the Justice Department is now starting to respond. There are now resignations from the Justice Department in protest. Three line prosecutors working on the Roger Stone case, withdrawing from that case after Barr intervened after the president expressed his displeasure with the recommended sentence that Stone had had put forth to the court by these line prosecutors. Three of them resigning from the case, a fourth not only withdrawing from the case, but resigning from the department altogether. Former Obama White House counsel Bob Bauer today describing that as a, quote, major event. And for Bob Bauer, the least hyperbolic man on earth, that's like a 10 alarm fire for him to call something a major event. Bob Bauer saying today, quote, dramatically forceful responses to Mr. Trump's assault on rule of law norms have been all too rare. A resignation can set off an alarm bell for an institution whose failings an official may be unable to bring to light any other way or as effectively. He says, quote, it upholds rule of law norms in the very act of signaling that they are failing. They are failing. Trump has officially ended one of the most important parts of the American experiment by demanding that an independent Department of Justice go easy on one of his buddies, specifically Roger Stone, the guy who's one of the guys who's got the goods on him. Roger Stone could testify about things that would put Donald Trump in jail. Probably going all the way back to the 1980s when they first became good buddies. Back in 1780, John Adams, who was, you know, moved on. Now, now this keep in mind, this is nine years before the United States was created as a as the country we know it. This is back right after the Revolutionary War when we were operating under the Articles of Confederation. John Adams, who ultimately became our second president, and Samuel Adams, whose bar in Massachusetts, and they're not related to each other, by the way, whose bar in Massachusetts was like the epicenter for the Boston Tea Party and for the organizing, you know, in, in the wake of the Boston Massacre and all the, and the shot heard around the world, all this stuff. Major revolutionaries. These two guys 
helped draft the Constitution for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And that Constitution says, and I quote, in the government of this Commonwealth, the executive, in other words, the governor in this case, but if you were to apply this to the federal government, it would be the president. The executive shall never exercise the legislative or judicial powers. In other words, the, the president or the governor cannot make laws, cannot pass laws, cannot rule in judgment of other people, and cannot insert himself into the punishment of people who have been adjudicated guilty to the end that it may be a government of laws and not of men. In other words, our goal here in creating the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is to create a government of laws, not men. And now that I've kind of broken that up with explanations, let me just read it real quick. In the government of this Commonwealth, the executive shall never exercise the legislative or judicial powers to the end that it may be a government of laws and not of men. By taking the judicial powers of convicting and sentencing, Donald Trump has turned our system of laws, not men, on its head. I mean, this is the sort of thing you'd expect to see in Erdogan's Turkey, in Al-Sisi's Egypt, in Bolsonaro's Brazil, in, in, uh, in Putin's Russia, in, in uh, Duterte's the Philippines, in, in China's in Xi's China. In Kim Jong-un's North Korea, for God's sake. But you, literally, I defy you to, to give me one example of any advanced democracy in the world where the prime minister has come out and second-guessed the courts and directed the courts or the prosecutorial system associated with the courts, their equivalent of the Department of Justice, the prosecutors to change what they're doing because it affects a friend of his. We are supposed to be a government of laws, not men. I don't know how unambiguous that can be. And if, if nothing else, I think this is a, a breathtaking indictment of our education system since Ronald Reagan took a meat axe to our public schools back in the 1980s and ended, you know, mandatory civics lessons. A lot of people who went through public schools since the 1980s don't even, aren't even familiar with that phrase, a government of laws, not men. I learned that in third or fourth grade, back when we were memorizing the preamble of the Constitution and, and parts of the Declaration of Independence and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, I mean, eight, nine, ten years old. But of course, that was a long time ago. Bill Barr and Donald Trump have now committed a complete repudiation of the most important of the values and structures that actually made this country a democratic republic. And I don't know how we can continue to call ourselves a constitutionally limited representative democratic republic. When in a republic, I mean, the whole, the, the functional definition of a republic is that the rule of law is paramount and that institutions that enforce the rule of law are independent of politics. 
Four brave federal prosecutors stood up to this and resigned. But if there's not an overwhelming and systematic response to this, to Trump's subversion of the American criminal justice system, our republic is, in a, is at an end. November could be too late. I mean, here you've got Trump. He tweeted this morning. Congratulations to Attorney General Bill Barr for taking charge of a case that was totally out of control and perhaps should not even have been brought. Evidence now clearly shows that the Mueller scam was improperly brought and tainted. Even Bob Mueller lied to Congress. That's Donald Trump. Congratulations to Bill Barr. This is the, the, the political president inserting himself into the Department of Justice. And he's basically admitting, confirming for all of us that Bill Barr personally intervened in this Roger Stone case. You know, the DOJ has been saying, oh, no, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't improper political influence. It wasn't Barr. It wasn't Trump. We just decided to do it. After we said uh, Roger Stone should get seven to nine years, we thought about it overnight. Well, it turns out that four of the prosecutors, this is uh, Aaron Zelinsky, Adam Jed, Jonathan Kravis, and Michael Mirando, four American heroes, learned that their recommended seven to nine years was being overturned in this case, in Roger Stone's criminal case. They learned about this by watching Fox News. No, the DOJ never told them. No, it wasn't their decision. They learned about it by watching Fox News. Trump had tweeted the night before, this is a horrible and very unfair situation. The real crimes were on the other side as nothing happens to them. Cannot allow this miscarriage of justice. Uh, he, and, then, and then yesterday, the reporter said, well, you know, did you blow this up? He says, I've not been involved at all. That would be a horrible aberration. These are, I guess, the same Mueller people that put everybody through hell, and I think it was a disgrace. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. And then last night on Twitter, he says, the prosecutors cut and ran after being exposed for recommending a ridiculous nine-year prison sentence to a man that got caught up in an investigation that was illegal, the Mueller scam. One of these four prosecutors has resigned entirely, presumably going to go into private practice. The other three have said, take us off this case. We cannot stay on this case in good conscience. In classic Democratic style, Chuck Schumer, instead of going you know, on TV and going, this is treason, which of course is what you know, uh, Doug Collins or Jim Jordan would be doing, uh, came out and very politely held a news conference saying, this situation has all the indicia of improper political interference in a criminal prosecution. Right, that's going to really crank up the folks. David Lofman, who is a former Justice Department official, was a little more explicit. He said, this is shocking, a cram down political intervention. We are now truly at a break glass in case of fire moment at the Justice Department. Amen. We are. After this president was elected, 
We spoke to Masha Gessen, who was then writing for the New York Review of Books. Now she's at The New Yorker. And we asked her about her experience of Putin, about whom she's written literally volumes. In the midst of all this talk of a looming American autocracy, we asked her, what lessons should we take from Russia? And I was skeptical at the time of one of those lessons. She said, your institutions will not save you. I was struck by the exact same line. It was scary. But I also just thought, our Justice Department is a monster. It is a machine helmed by people who have devoted their life to text and law and rules and right and wrong. And even if we don't agree on details about how policies are implemented, we agree on what justice is. And so I remember thinking, you know, the generals will save us and the Justice Department will save us. I I guess I'm a little surprised at the extent, Brooke, to which the Foreign Service has stepped in. We've seen silent lawyers say, I'm out, I can't do this anymore. But it hasn't been this public explanatory proposition the way we've seen from the Foreign Service. And I, I wonder a because little— Because no hearings. Well, because no hearings, and I also think the culture of the Justice Department is such a small-c conservative culture of a deep, deep abiding belief that the president may change, but the Justice Department doesn't. I wonder if some of it is just people who genuinely believe from the bottom of their hearts that if they stay on, they could mitigate the worst of it. What about the official statements that come from institutions like the Justice Department? I have never seen an administration so steeped in lies. We get a lot of information from government institutions, departments. Can we trust them at all anymore? I've been doing this long enough to remember covering the Justice Department during the era of the torture memos in Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. And even then... We could disagree on the merits of, you know, the CIA torture program, but the claims that black is white and up is down and right is wrong and deep state have really, really changed everything. Once you are in a situation where you assume that the Justice Department is going to tell you something that is not true— about how this Roger Stone sentencing kerfuffle happened, mm -hmm. uh, you're in really, really pernicious territory, not just as a journalist, but as a citizen. The thing that scares me almost more than anything is that I think we're starting to see a narrative that is being paved with President Trump's uh, threats to the sentencing judge in this case, Amy Berman Jackson, claims about the prosecutors who walked off the case and how they're all steeped in corruption. I worry that we are really starting to see in real time complete collapse of the norm that the people at the Justice Department are by and large trying to do good bipartisan work. It's Trump's rhetorical trick, crooked Hillary and so forth creating a kind of quick synaptic pathway between a phrase and a person or an institution. The phrase fake news, which has migrated so enormously from its original meeting as news cranked out at offshore clickbait sites to any report that Trump doesn't like has now taken root. And then you mentioned this deep state trope. That was in a New York Times headline not long ago. 
that's what I mean when I say we're normalizing it. If you just keep reinforcing mm-hmm. the language that there is such a thing as a quote-unquote deep state, this is a fantasy. There is no deep state. At the end of the day, what it serves to do is completely dilute public confidence in the Justice Department. People stop trusting the Justice Department to be truthful. So it goes way beyond Roger Stone and his sentence. It's the same with the news stuff. We see public confidence in the news plummet. And this is the other hallmark of authoritarianism. It's not just breaking the institution. It's breaking public confidence in the institution. And that is a move that when it's directed at the entire justice system really goes to the heart of what rule of law means. If you cannot trust that the bad guys go to jail and the good guys are exonerated, then I don't know what we're all doing here. Former Deputy Attorney General under President George H.W. Bush. Uh, That's back when uh, Bill Barr served as attorney general for the first time for a short stint. That attorney general, that deputy attorney general, is calling on Bill Barr to resign, citing the events of the last week surrounding Roger Stone's sentencing reversal, calling that the, quote, worst conduct thus far in a new op-ed in The Atlantic, Donald Ayer outlines the ways in which Barr has torn down reforms that were put in place at the ju- at the uh, Justice Department after the Nixon-era Watergate scandal. All of this has been just torn apart by Bill Barr. Uh, he writes about how Barr has handled the Stone and Michael Flynn cases, which air, like many Trump critics, believes are attacks on special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe specifically. He writes, Ayers writes, bad as they are, these examples are more symptoms than causes of Barr's unfitness for office. The fundamental problem is that he does not believe in the central tenet of our system of government, that no person is above the law. In chilling terms, Barr's own words make clear his long-held belief in the need for a virtually autocratic executive who is not constrained by countervailing powers within our government under the constitutional system of checks and balances. Ayers went on to write, Bill Barr's America is not a place that anyone, including Trump voters, should want to go. It is a banana republic where all are subject to the whims of a dictatorial president and his henchmen. To prevent that, we need a public uprising, he says, demanding that Bill Barr resign immediately or, failing that, that he be impeached. Now, remember, Donald uh, Ayer is not some lefty Democrat. He was appointed a U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of California by then-President Ronald Reagan, Later, he was appointed as deputy AG by George H.W. Bush and was actually succeeded in that specific job by, yup, Bill Barr, who would later go on to become AG at the end of Bush's term. Here's air on MSNBC on Monday. The problem here goes to a whole pattern of things that he's done since the beginning of his term, including the whitewashing of the Mueller report, including sort of categorically rejecting the critical finding of the inspector general's report, including a whole series of 
um, OLC opinions that had been issued to support the the um, stonewalling of, of Congress and a variety of other things um, with regard to a whole variety of traditional checks and balances. The things that he has done, which are totally inappropriate, are not a mistake. They are a reflection of who he is and what he believes. And what he believes is un-American. What he believes is that the president should be a person above the law. Americans don't believe that the president should be above the law. And that's the reason Bill Barr needs to go. That's the reason he needs to go. That was former Deputy Attorney General under former President George H.W. Bush, Donald Ayer. And remember, when he argued that even Trump voters should want Barr to go, describing what we have become as a banana republic where all are subject to the whims of a dictatorial president, a dictatorial president and his henchmen. To prevent that, we need a public uprising demanding that Bill Barr resign immediately or failing that be impeached, he wrote. But he is hardly the only one calling for such action right now. More than 2,000 former Justice Department officials who served in Republican as well as Democratic administrations have now signed a statement that was posted on Sunday calling on Bill Barr to resign. That's nearly double the 1,100 who had signed it when it was first published on Sunday, two days later now, and it's over 2,000 former DOJ officials. The rare statement from these officials, mostly former career prosecutors, but also some former political appointees, comes after the DOJ leadership said that it would lower the amount of prison time that it was going to seek for Trump ally Roger Stone, reversing the original sentencing recommendation brought by DOJ prosecutors last week. That then prompted four DOJ lawyers who had prosecuted the Stone case to quit the case altogether, one of them resigning from the DOJ entirely. It is unheard of for the department's top leaders to overrule line prosecutors who are following established policies in order to give preferential treatment to a close associate of the president, as Attorney General Barr did in the Stone case, reads this letter from, again, more than 2,000 former 2,000 former DOJ officials. Those actions and the damage they have done to the Department of Justice's reputation for integrity and the rule of law require Mr. Barr to resign. It also notes, quote, because we have little expectation that Barr will resign, it falls to the to the department's career officials to take appropriate action to uphold their oaths of office and defend nonpartisan apolitical justice. The letter points to the Department of Justice's rules for its lawyers, noting that legal decisions, quote, must be impartial and insulated from political influence. And yet President Trump and Attorney General Barr have openly and repeatedly flouted this fundamental principle. The letter commends the four prosecutors who withdrew from the Stone case saying, quote, we call on every DOJ employee to follow their heroic example. They state advising the staff to report any future abuses to the inspector general, to the Office of Professional Responsibility, and to Congress. Can we pull back from all the details? 
for a minute. It's so easy to get lost in them. And this one thing or another that might be intriguing or that might outrage people on one side or another of politics, what do you think is really at stake here? At risk of sounding like I'm exaggerating, I think what is really in question here is the rule of law in the United States. And what I mean by that is it has long been a foundational principle of our democracy that law enforcement should be separate from political interference and that that is part of the the reassurance that we have that you know the president isn't going to go after prosecute a particular individual just because he doesn't like them say or that people who are friends with the president will be treated equally and that's what we mean when we describe equal justice under law what i think we see in trump's approach to the justice department which largely uh, Barr has assisted in in making reality is a vision of the presidency that, uh, as my colleague Benjamin Wittes would say, is about advantaging friends and disadvantaging enemies. It's a vision of law that is all about uh, the will of the person in power, in this case, Trump. And that's really antithetical to what we would have previously understood as really the the underlying structure of democracy and the rule of law. There are many Republicans saying President Obama criticized judges. He criticized a Supreme Court decision in his State of the Union address one year, and that was not the only example. So if there's a consistent standard here, did both Trump and Obama violate it, in your opinion, if to different degrees? I think it's important to draw a distinction between criticizing uh, the Supreme Court versus attacking an individual judge by name, which is what Trump did in that case, in the Stone case. That said, it's absolutely true that sometimes these lines are fuzzy. Um, a lot of what governs the behavior of the president, as we've, you know, we've all learned over the last couple of years, is norms, is how we think the president should behave rather than any hard and fast rule. And what that means is that sometimes presidents step over the line. So what I would say is that if a person believes that, for example, it was stepping over the line for President Obama to criticize the Supreme Court for Citizens United in his State of the Union, that may be the case. But naming a particular judge is way, way farther over that line. And it's also the case that that's one example of Obama behaving in that way versus President Trump, who has just repeatedly engaged in these campaigns against the independent judiciary. Um, almost every time that a ruling comes down against him, he's criticized the lower courts extensively for the travel ban. Uh, for rulings against the wall he wants to build on the southern border. And so while there may have been conduct by previous presidents that kind of straddles the line, maybe steps over it, President Trump is way, way on the other side of that line. This year... By orders from Attorney General William Barr, this year, investigations that might potentially impact the presidential campaign. This time, there's a new rule for those in this election year. This time, explicitly, 
any such investigation has to be personally approved in writing by Attorney General William Barr. He and he alone will make the decision as to whether or not the Justice Department will engage in investigations that could impact presidential campaigns and candidates in this re-election year for President Trump. So, oh, good. I mean, there's been general rules about these things in the past, but any investigation affecting a presidential campaign has to be cleared through Bill Barr personally. That's new for this year. That's the way we're all supposed to be assured that all of these things will be handled fairly and squarely and not at all in a way that's designed to serve President Trump's personal and political interests. Since Attorney General William Barr changed that guidance to the Justice Department about election year investigations, um, that was the first week in February where he made that announcement. Uh, just since then, we're only in mid-February now, we've learned a whole lot about how he's been conducting himself at the helm of the Justice Department and how much we should trust him to make sure Justice Department decisions are handled in a way that's independent of the president's personal interests. I mean, just in the past couple of weeks, we have learned that Attorney General William Barr personally intervened in the criminal case involving this man after he was convicted by a jury on seven felony counts before Attorney General Barr intervened personally to wipe out the sentencing recommendation for Roger Stone, we'd never before known of any attorney general personally getting involved at the sentencing phase for a convicted felon to try to get the person off. But even though we had never heard of that before he did it with Roger Stone, we would soon thereafter learn that uh, he'd done it before the Roger Stone case, too. We have since learned that Attorney General Barr has also apparently intervened to reverse the sentencing recommendation that had been filed by federal prosecutors in the Michael Flynn case several weeks earlier. We then learned that Barr not only intervened to override the prosecutors and ask for a lenient sentence for Flynn, he also brought in a whole set of lawyers chosen by him personally to review the whole Flynn case and apparently sort of hijack it from the prosecutors who had been handling it from the get-go who had already secured Flynn's guilty plea. At the same time, we learned that that same team of people that Barr had put in place to hijack the Flynn prosecution, they've also been assigned by William Barr to work on a number of other cases at that same U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. They came in from outside at the direction of Attorney General William Barr specifically to take over politically sensitive cases of interest to the president, including some that have not yet been made public. At that U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. attorney there has been ousted. She's been replaced with one of Attorney General William Barr's closest aides. Four prosecutors have resigned from the Stone case. One prosecutor has resigned from the Department of Justice altogether. The revelations have caused more than 2,000 former Justice Department officials to call for the resignation of William Barr. Donald Ayer, who served as a deputy attorney general in the George H.W. Bush administration alongside William Barr, he's known William Barr for 40 years, he's now gone so far as to urge a, quote, public uprising to insist that Attorney General Barr should be removed from the Justice Department. But this uproar, this ongoing uproar, is not apparently making things any better when it comes to the issue about which there is the uproar about the, the use of the criminal justice system to do favors for the president and to go after the president's enemies, to protect and reward his loyalists. I mean, each passing day since this scandal has broken open, the crisis has seemed to get a little worse, not better.
Just when you think you can rest one afternoon, there's pardon after pardon. The three most, I guess, conspicuous and famous pardons, Bernard Carrick, the former police commissioner in New York City, who had been the nominee to be the head of DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, that went south. That was prosecuted by my office. He pled guilty and was sentenced while I was the U.S. attorney, although my predecessor, Mike Garcia, is the one who oversaw the charging against him. Michael Milken, uh, one of the most famous insider trading cases of all time from 1990. And then Mr. Rod Blagojevich, the colorful former governor of Illinois, Democrat, who was prosecuted by my friend and former colleague, Patrick Fitzgerald, whom the president referred to as Fitzpatrick. <laughs> um, yeah. On television yesterday, bunch of pardons. Let me read one of the questions from listeners and we can respond. This is from Ian M. Hill, who asks, what's the justification for any president to commute sentences or apply a complete pardon? Even if he, she were a former lawyer, how could they know better than the original judge, especially if the defendant pleaded guilty? Hashtag ask Preet. What do you make of all this, Anne? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And it's worth talking about clemencies and pardons just big picture for a minute, which is that it's a presidential power. It's a constitutional power in Article 2 of the Constitution. And the idea was always that there be this sort of avenue for mercy or fairness that if the president felt that it was inappropriate, um, that somehow the sentence was too long or if someone had, for example, gone to prison, served their time, come out, done good deeds and really taken responsibility to sort of wash it away to let them get on with their life. It's not used a ton. Obama used it frequently when it related to drug incarceration, people who had been given long sentences for drug crimes and and for a variety of other um, sort of nonviolent offenses. But what is really unique and what I want to just sort of stop on with Trump is not that the president doesn't have the power to do this. He absolutely does. It's the way he's using it that I think is so deeply troubling. I mean, these are all folks who are either political corruption or, you know, I consider both Rod, um, I can never say his last name, (laughs) Rod Blagojevich and Bernie Carrick. um, They're both political corruption cases, in my view. And, you know, there are, and Milken, of course, is famous for junk bonds and really being at sort of like the height of corporate greed. They're all sort of individuals who are people who had an enormous amount of opportunity. They're white collar criminals. To me, it is stunning that the president really chooses to spend his clemency power and his commutation power on these folks. I mean, what does it say to you, Preet? I mean, I, what I was stunned by was not that the president would want to pardon or commute these people, but that he's so brazen and basically saying, I'm just going to do the white collar defendants. I'm not going to do Well, he, he does, he does from time to time the others, but he understands the power of the press release. He understands the power of news. And so he knows when he pardons people who are involved in sensational cases that were a big deal that that is what's going to grab attention and drive the narrative. So he knows exactly what he's doing, even if there's some people from time to time who don't fall into this narrow category that you're that you're talking about. Going back to the person's question, what's the justification? He doesn't need to have one because the Constitution says you have this power and this right. But like with anything else, if you want to have a system that's fair and perceived as fair, a system of protocols develops over time. You know, so- sometime after the Constitution was drafted in more recent history, there was set up in the Department of Justice the Office of the Pardon Attorney. And even though the president has absolute authority to do whatever the hell he wants with respect to pardons and commutations, there was a process that was set up so it would look like it was fair and so that the most deserving commutation and pardon applications would make their way through the process and a recommendation would be made by the pardon attorney to the White House. And generally speaking, that was in consultation with the prior prosecutors, the judge, the defense lawyer, taking into account how the law may have changed and how maybe perceptions in society have changed about the the heinousness of the crime, and also a whole list of criteria. Again, not mandatory, but a whole list of criteria, including 
uh, level of remorse of the person who committed the crime, whether the fact of the conviction has held that person back in material ways, uh, what kind of an exemplary life they've lived since that time, so that it's not only people who are famous, it's not only people who have famous lawyers, not only people who know Kim Kardashian, but there's a system through which, in some fair and appropriate and balanced and legitimate way that's done with integrity, a president can make good and wise choices as to how to exercise this completely unfettered power of his. And the fact that he bypasses all of that is a problem. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, which is that usually there is a process that's followed. And again, the president doesn't have to, but traditionally presidents have followed them. And with this, the president, you know, the reporting um, was that the president basically said he followed, quote, recommendations in making his decisions, but it's not clear that he relied on what would be the normal Justice Department vetting process. And it is a really important thing for people to believe that there's a fair and transparent process for when these things take place. I'll tell you one other thing that's a little unusual is that we've seen in the past, I mean, Obama set up this whole process where people had to apply and there were certain conditions that they had to meet and the pardon attorneys had to sort of go through everybody who was in federal prison and the applications to see who was eligible. This is the exact opposite of that. And this type of pardon is much more akin to what we've seen presidents do on their way out of office, right? right? And to sort of see like, you know, you remember President Clinton and Mark Rich, which was sort of 11th hour as he was walking out the door. That was a heinous, uh, we should just mention. It was a terrible pardon. Yeah. So it's not just that that this president, I think, abuses the power, although he has the power. You know, I, I worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in SDNY as a line prosecutor at the time. And I've said this before. Mary Jo White opened up an investigation of President Clinton, the man who appointed her, because of how stinky the pardon of Mark Rich was. Yes. I mean, I think there have long been issues about how the presidents use this power. I would also say this is sort of fascinating. In the Bernie Carrick pardon, and remember, he was convicted of tax fraud and lying to the government. Trump said that he'd heard from more than a dozen people who wanted Mr. Carrick to be pardoned, including Rudy Giuliani, Geraldo right, right. um, Rivera, Eddie Rudy Gallagher, Giuliani. the former <laughs> he, the former Navy SEAL accused right. of war crimes. Um, you know, and it's, it's just sort of like, this is how the world is working. And, you know, I've seen, there are people who were incarcerated for life sentences for three strikes are out on things like writing bad checks. There are people in the, you know, the war on drugs who are incarcerated for decades for, you know, largely nonviolent offenses. And of course, there's a fair and I think robust debate right now about what the right length of sentence is in some crimes. But this really is not about that. This is really about, you know, is the president exercising his power in favor of friends you know, and, and again, they're all people, in my view, who largely are seen to have violated the public trust in some way. Yeah. So if you look at, there's a very astute question or observation made by another listener, Mark Dukes, who says, did you notice that all the president's pardons and commutations today were for felons who had violated the public trust or were outright corrupt? Birds of a feather. And there are some people who are saying, well, of course, the president wants to pardon people who have engaged in conduct that he himself has been accused of engaging in and he doesn't want to go to prison for. Right? So right. somebody, I think, said on Twitter, it's kind of like anticipatory projection. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's well, it definitely also does. It is. Yes, definitely. And it also definitely, I mean, you know, you and I have talked about this before on the Cafe Insider, but it sets up the stone pardon as well. Um, and I think, you know, there's no question that the president is looking, in my view, at least to pardon stone also or to commute his sentence. And so this is sort of setting up the path forward on that potentially as well. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And just, you know, again, as with respect to Roger Stone, when you have the case of Blagojevich, there have been people, including Democrats, who have said, you know what, 14 years was maybe too long. And, you know, in the in the Kerry case, by the way, whose sentencing I was U.S. attorney for, the judge went above the guidelines and gave a sentence to Bernie Kerry of, of four years that was beyond what the government sought. And there are fair and legitimate arguments and good faith arguments that sentences are too long. 
But when you have a person exercising his power, whether it's reaching into the Justice Department or Roger Stone or using the pardon power in a particular way, I think it prompts a lot of cynicism. And that's not a good thing. Milton Mayer had uh, he was he was a reporter for as I recall the Chicago Sun one of the big Chicago newspapers and after the war and he was Jewish too he you know had a, a perspective on this um, I mean all Americans had a perspective on it but after the Holocaust and and after the war he went to his editor and he said you know I'd like to go to Germany excuse me spend a year there. Get to know average Germans, average Germans who didn't become Nazis, who didn't get drafted as Herr Mueller had or or join, you know, the Hitler Youth as von Heyer had, um, who just got, you know, the, the world just changed around them and write a book about it. And he did. And he spent that time in Germany. I, I'm not sure it was a whole entire year, but he, he, he there were 10 average Germans. There was a baker, there was a bricklayer, there was a, a professor. Um, and he, he, he stayed with these guys. He got to know them really, really well. And he wrote their stories. In this book, they thought they were free. And I want to just share some small pieces from this book with you. Because I think it's instructive. Milton Mayer has passed on now, long ago. Um, but his book is still in print. He says, now I see a little better how Nazism overcame Germany. Not by attack from without or by subversion from within, but with a whoop and a holler. It was what Germans wanted, or under pressure of combined reality and illusions, came to want. They wanted it, they got it, they liked it. I came home a little bit afraid for my country, afraid of what we might want and get and like under combined pressure of reality and illusion. I feel, I felt and feel that it was not German man that I met, but man. He happened to be in German under certain conditions. He might be here under certain conditions. He might under certain conditions be me. If I and my countrymen ever succumbed to that concatenation of conditions, no constitution, no laws, no police, and certainly no army, would be able to protect us from harm. And then he tells the story. This is from um, his conversation with the college professor, who, again, never, never joined the Nazis. He said, what happened here was the gradual habituation of the people, little by little, to being governed by surprise, to receiving decisions deliberated in secret, to believing that the situation was so complicated that the government had to act on information that people couldn't understand, or so dangerous that even if the people could understand it, it couldn't be released because of national security. This separation of government from people, this widening of the gap, took place so gradually and so insensibly, each step disguised, perhaps not even intentionally, as a temporary emergency measure, or associated with true patriotic allegiance, or with real social purposes. In all the crises and reforms, and many were real reforms, so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath, 
of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. And then he gets to the, to the point of all this, which is that everything still looks the same. He said, to live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please, try to believe me. Unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us ever had occasion to develop. Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained, or on occasion regretted, that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, what all these little measures that no patriotic German could, rep, uh, could resent, must someday lead to. One no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in his field sees the corn growing. And then one day, it is over his head. He says, one day too late, your principles, if you, are, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown so too heavy. And some minor incident, in my case, it was my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Jew, swine, collapses it all at once. And you see that everything, everything has changed and completely changed under your nose. The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you thought you were in at all. The forms are all still there, all untouched, all reassuring. The houses, the shops... The jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, is changed. And now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now you live in a system which rules without responsibility, even to God. He goes on to say, Pastor Niemöller spoke for the thousands and thousands of men like me when he spoke too modestly of himself and said that, you know, when the Nazis attacked the communists, he was a little uneasy, but after all, he was not a communist, and so he did nothing, and then they attacked the socialists, and he was a little uneasier, but still he wasn't a socialist, and he did nothing, and then the schools, the press, the Jews, and so on, and he was always uneasier, but still he did nothing, and then they attacked the church, and he was a churchman, and he did something, but then it was too late. You see, one doesn't see exactly where or how to move. And this is the question that Rachel Maddow kept asking last night, and she never got an answer or gave an answer to the best of my knowledge, which is, what do we do? Back to the professor, the German professor in 1950. Believe me, this is true. Each act, each occasion is worse than the last, but only a little worse. You wait for the next and the next. You wait for the one great shocking occasion, thinking that all the others, when such a shock comes, will join with you in resisting somehow. You don't want to act or even to talk alone. You don't want to go out of your way to make trouble. Why not? Well, you're not in the habit of doing it. And it's not just fear. Fear of standing alone that restrains you. It is genuine uncertainty. This is uncertainty is a very important factor. And instead of decreasing as time goes on, uncertainty grows. Outside in the streets, in the general community, everyone seems happy. One hears no protest and certainly sees none. 
You know, in France or Italy, there's slogans against the government painted on walls and fences. In Germany, though, outside the great cities, there's not even this. In the university community, my own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whom certainly feel as you do, but what do they say? They say, it's not so bad. You're seeing things. You're being an alarmist. And you are an alarmist. You are saying that you know that this must lead to that, but you can't prove it. These are the beginnings, yes, but how do you know for sure when you don't know the end? And how do you know or even surmise the end? On the one hand, your enemies, the law, the regime, the party, they intimidate you. On the other, your colleagues poo-poo you as pessimistic or even neurotic. But that one great shocking occasion, I talked about this yesterday, but that one great shocking occasion, the college professor told Milton Mayer, and he wrote it, they thought they were free. When tens or hundreds of thousands will join you, never comes. That's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and the smallest, thousands, yes, millions would have been sufficiently shocked. Think kids in cages, by the way, as I'm reading this. We've just heard clips today, starting with Rachel Maddow discussing the DOJ corruption and the alarm bells it's sounding. Tom Hartman discussed the paramount importance of having a system of laws, not of men. On the media, spoke with Dahlia Lithwick about the fragility of our institutions. The Bradcast talked about the growing calls for Barr's resignation. The Brian Lehrer Show discussed the threat facing the rule of law as we know it, so, you know, no big deal. Rachel Maddow highlighted that Barr is now in charge of deciding whether investigations of political candidates will go forward this election cycle, so we can all rest easy about that. Stay tuned with Pret explained Trump's recent pardon spree. And finally, we just heard Tom Hartman doing one of his readings of They Thought They Were Free to help us remember how the slow descent into dictatorship works in reality. Members will be hearing more about how the stability of our institutions are supposed to be maintained and why they're under threat. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash left. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Ian calling from Orange County, California. Um, I was calling in about episode 1337. Uh, I just had an anecdote that I thought was uh, kind of funny or is eye-opening about it. Um, this past Christmas, someone brought up the, for whatever reason, brought up the whole uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. And my dad is a huge Trump supporter, MAGA person who conversely is a big supporter because of our very uh, deep Irish heritage is a deep supporter of the uh, of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which um, by most accounts is a terrorist organization. Some might say freedom fighters, but some might also say terrorist organization. I asked my dad, so if I came into your house, decided the way you were living was wrong, and told you that you have to live the way I told you to live, would that change your mind about violence? And he's like, yes, of course, I would defend myself and tell you to leave. Well, 
and I asked, why is it okay for some people in the world, let's say in Belfast or any part of Northern Ireland, to do that through force, but when someone does it in Gaza, it's bad? My dad didn't have any response, and I said, could it be because they're brown? He tried to say, no, that's racist, and I was like, well, you just said that. You just said that. You said that one life is different, and one way of life is different, one way of life is is not different, or one is good, one is bad. If you have solidarity with one, you have solidarity with all. I'm not saying he wasn't trying to say anything overtly racist, but I, I did catch him in that little that little trap. I'm not advocating, of course, for violence or anything like that. I want a peaceful solution. I'm just showing the hypocrisy of someone who believes that some people can use violence, some people can't, and it happens to be the the thing that is different is the people's skin color and their religion. Yeah, that's all I wanted to know. Thanks a lot. Um, See ya. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly calling in uh, about the recent episode on Israel-Palestine. And I got to say, I I was moved by something from one of the clips from Democracy Now! where Prime Minister Netanyahu was talking. You know, I don't want it to seem like I, I have any kind of hostility to the existence of Israel. And you know, he said something that, that really made sense to me. He said, well, you know, this is where our kings ruled, this is where our prophets lived. And, you know, if that kind of a historical claim, no matter how much time has passed, no matter what else has gone on in the region in between, if that is something we've decided we need to honor, you know, I respect that. But I just want to be sure that the United States is taking part in this process, isn't acting hypocritically, because obviously, you know, that's not something we want to be seen to be doing. Um, so if we're going to honor historic claims part of the how this people was driven from the land, genocide was committed against them, they need a place to call home, their sovereignty will be respected, and so on, then uh, I think the United States needs to be willing to say the same thing to all of the Native Americans that are still existing in this country and all the Native American governments that still exist here. I mean... After all, they're a persecuted people. They were driven from their land. Genocide was committed against them. We need to make sure that their culture is preserved. And, you know, currently there's a whole lot of non-Native people living in North America on the land where their ancestors are buried, where their sacred places are, whether it's uh, things that were built or natural areas that are sacred to these people. And so, you know, I'm not saying that all of the white people need to leave North America, I mean, that would be silly. We wouldn't force that on the Palestinians, and we wouldn't force that on uh, white people in America. It's been 400 years. Stuff has happened. But I think the only possible thing that we can do, to be fair, is to disband the U.S. government, or at least, you know, turn it into a state without full sovereignty. They would still be able to manage affairs for the white people in this country, but really it would be up to the Native Americans figure out what we were allowed to do with the land, the air, the water. They would really take over running this place. They could decide where white people are allowed to live. If it turns out that, say, New York City is built on sacred sites, well, everybody might just have to move out of there and allow the native tribes to come back in and restore it to its original and historic status. So, like I said, only being fair, I think if we're going to exceed to Israel's demands based on some sort of a 5,000-year-old historic claim, then we should at least honor the equally ancient claims of Native Americans 
be in North America. I realize, of course, there's a tricky business with African Americans because, of course, they were all kidnapped and brought here against their will. And so I think the only fair way to deal with them would be allow all African Americans to create separate treaties with Native people. And if that means that they end up in a privileged position over white people, well, that's just geopolitics for you. What can you do? Anyway, just a modest proposal. Great show as always, and stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So first of all, Eamon brought up the IRA and Israel. And when you want to talk about the IRA in America... There's really only one place to go, and that's Peter King. Peter King, otherwise known as, oh, Peter King, not to be confused with the bigot Steve King. Uh, Peter King, also a bigot, but different. Thursday, the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, Republican Peter King, will open hearings on what he calls radicalization in the American Muslim community. He says that the threat of homegrown terrorism is on the rise, and American Muslims are not doing enough to stop it. Wow. It's not enough for U.S. Muslims to be law-abiding. To avoid congressional investigation, they have to be actively stopping terror plots. Oh, my God. Wait until they find out I've done nothing to stop the West Bank settlements. <laughs> Are you saying every community must police its own? We're going after the mafia, we look to the Italian community, the Westies, the Irish community, and the York, like we have the Russian mob. Right, but we don't drag every Italian in New York City before Congress to find out why they haven't yet broken up the Gambino family. <laughs> but Peter King... <laughs> has long believed that Muslims should be held to a higher standard. The imam himself, who poses as a moderate, yet he was saying after 9-11 that the U.S. may have brought on the attack itself. Uh, he also refused to say whether Hamas is a terrorist organization. And as a result of that, I believe there should be a full investigation of the funding and of the imam himself. So it's really more than just people aren't helping. Peter King believes that people should be investigated by the government for failing to denounce terrorist organizations, even ones with mainly regional ambitions. Hey, I wonder if there's anyone else Peter King thinks we should investigate who in the past has shown sympathies for these types of groups. Peter King in the past has had uh, ties in Ireland uh, to the IRA and Sinn Féin. The IRA! <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Wait, the individual retirement account people or the car bomb innocent bystanders, <laughs> political terror people? I'm being told both. <laughs> he has a fine retirement plan, but also the association with terrorists. King, who a Northern Irish judge once called an obvious collaborator with the IRA, often spoke at events held by NORAID, a New York group accused of sending the IRA guns and money, and went on TV and said things like this. I will say tonight what I've said for the past 25 years, that the uh, moral standing of the IRA is equal to that of the British Army. Wow. Wait until Congressman Peter King gets a hold of terrorist sympathizer Peter King. That's going to be a storm. 
Okay, okay, fine. But where does that leave him on the question of Israel? Maybe he's totally consistent and uh, non-hypocritical in his beliefs about oppressed peoples fighting against uh, larger governments. Well, I came across this headline, unsurprisingly. A prominent Irish-American congressman, Peter King, has been accused of, quote, highly inappropriate, unquote, lobbying in a bid to persuade Irish politicians to reject a proposed ban on imports from Israel's illegal settlements in Palestine. So it looks like he's not on the side of the Palestinian freedom movement. Oh, well. Now, as for Aaron's policy proposal about giving the United States back to the native people, I'm perfectly happy to add that to our growing list of planks in our policy platform. Of course, the more policies you add, the more you open up a discussion about prioritization. So, you know, I may argue that turning over the country to the native people should be seen as more of a long-term goal, but I'm happy to, you know, have that debate and hear other sides. Whereas our healthcare proposal, I may argue, is a little bit more urgent. You know, people need healthcare right now. People are dying for lack of sufficient healthcare coverage and treatment right here and now. And so our healthcare proposal of opening up the hunting of the rich in order to harvest their organs, and let's also say bank accounts in order to provide the healthcare needs of the poor. That's a policy we may need to move on faster. But, you know, that that's what uh, democracy is all about. Like, we can have these discussions and decide uh, how and where to prioritize these sorts of things. And let me be clear, because I will not be put in a corner of being unreasonable or inflexible. I have always said that I am willing to negotiate. I know my starting point. I know that I want to hunt the rich and take their assets, both physical and monetary, in order to provide health care to the rest of us. But I am willing to negotiate. If you want to make some sort of counterproposal from that position, I'm going to be willing to move. But I do at least uh, demand on the respect of uh, appreciating where I'm coming from and, and meeting me where I am and, and negotiating in good faith from here. That's the kind of goodwill and acting in good faith that we hope will be reciprocated by the native people and, and in the hope that they will, you know, be, be generous in return, perhaps give us uh, generous uh, reservation lands to live on or, or even, uh, you know, very generous uh, long-term payment plan for the reparations we will inevitably owe. So I argue that having a, a healthy combination of knowing where you stand and acting in good faith and being willing to be flexible is exactly what uh, politics in this country needs right now. And now finally, to wrap up, I just have a little bit more about uh, one of today's major topic themes, Bill Barr. This was going around on Twitter, but I found the original. I made sure it was real. It's not just a mock-up. In uh, 1991, there was an op-ed piece written about Bill Barr in a local newspaper by someone who knew him in school. And it's just a great little summary with uh, some takeaways of what Bill Barr was like starting as far back as junior high up through college. So the, the title of the article is What William Barr Isn't Telling His Questioners. And this is when he was being questioned by the Senate 
to be attorney general way back under George H.W. Bush. Takeaways from this article include that the author knew Barr from junior high through college. Uh, Barr was a bully, specifically of the author, because the author had like, you know, peace and, uh, you know, racial equality pins that he would wear, and that drove Barr crazy. Barr made a career of hunting commies, the uh, article writer says. He, uh, Barr, picketed the junior carnival because proceeds were going to the NAACP. And then in college, he would team up with New York City riot police to attack anti-war protesters and, quote-unquote, long hairs. So you're starting to get a sense of this guy. And then I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs that's worth hearing. So the article says, and this is Barr speaking, quote, When I was a student at Columbia University, Barr told Teddy, referring to Teddy Kennedy in the Senate at the time, and the committee, continuing, student protesters blocked the entrance to class buildings and obstructed my constitutional right to go to class. I know what it is like. Unquote. Barr, meanwhile, had already expressed with refreshing candor, per Chairman Biden, his view that the Constitution does not provide a right to abortion, notwithstanding Roe v. Wade, which, the last time I looked, is the law of the land. Of course, the Constitution certainly does not provide a right to go to college, and Lord knows if there was ever an effort to establish such a right, Bush, Barr, and company would do everything imaginable in opposition. This type of hypocritical and cynical double-talk about constitutional rights is an affront to the Constitution. Barr hates the Constitution, unless it is being used to shield millionaire defendants. He and David Duke are two of a kind, wolves in sheep's clothing. I don't see what is so refreshingly candid about wearing a three-piece suit over a brown shirt. In fact, it is all the more insidious. And with that, we will wrap up. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.